We will now read from God's holy law or word, and we'll do so from Colossians 1. We'll be continuing our series in Colossians, and we'll start at Colossians 1, verse 15. You can find that on your, in your pew Bible on page 1,165. 1, So Colossians 1, starting at verse 15. And our text for the sermon will begin at verse 24 to the end of our reading. So Colossians 1, verse 15, the supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept for ages, kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which he so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, And I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Let's now respond to God's 
holy word, and we'll do so by singing from Psalm 87. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is a servant of Christ? How can we know who a true servant of the mystery of Jesus is? Or for our calling committee, how do you find a true minister, a true servant of the word and sacrament? These things which reveal the mysteries of Christ. So who is a servant of the church? It's an important question for us to know for Maranatha to answer, but it's also an important question for the Colossian church. You see, there were many so-called teachers, servants, ministers, pastors, who were misleading the Colossian church, but they were not true servants of Christ and the church. Rather, they were false servants, false teachers. And so our question, which is a little different than the theme I have in the bulletin, is Who is a true servant of Christ and the church? And we'll see that a true servant is one who first rejoices in Christ-like suffering, and second, who desires to make the mystery of Christ fully known, and third, who works by the energy of Christ. In last week's text, Paul dressed the Colossians specifically, but then he also mentions himself. He says in Colossians 1.23, if we turn there, I close my Bible so I have to find it again. Colossians 1 verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that is being proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. He says that he has become a servant. And this introduces the text for today, where Paul explains his own servanthood, his pastoral work, and his relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he expresses all of this in the term servant. You know, Paul had never met the Colossian church, but they certainly knew about him. Everyone knew Paul, the persecutor of the church who then became a great apostle to the Gentiles. And as a result, he was therefore an authority figure to the Colossian Gentile church. And so Paul wants the Colossians to receive his words well. He desires them to understand exactly why is he writing to them. And so as he does in most of his letters, he gives an introduction to himself and what he has been up to. For instance, if we jump ahead to verse 25, we read, I have become its servant, that's the church's servant, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul says again that he is a servant. Before he said that he was a servant of the gospel, but now here he expands what he means by this and he says he's a servant of the church, the church throughout the globe the Gentile church, and he has a special task for the entire church. And this task, to be a servant, was given to him by none other than God himself. And so this helps the Colossians 
to know that Paul didn't want to take this position himself, or he didn't just take it himself. It's not like he just picked up a pen and started writing to them as though he assumed that he had authority or that he felt that he should be the leader. No, you see, God loved the church. He loves his church to this day. And this included the Colossians. And so God gave them Paul to be their servant. And so they can receive Paul's message, his letter and teaching. They can receive it well with confidence because they know it is God's plan to use Paul to help them. You know, for example, let's say you're working on a job site when some random person shows up and he starts telling you what to do. He starts telling you, oh, I'm going to help you with your work. Your initial reaction will probably be like, "Uh, that's all right, we don't need you here. We're fine, we know what we're doing. But if that person, that stranger, says, hey, the boss sent me down to help you, to point out what you guys are supposed to be doing. As a worker, you'd readily accept him because he has come from the boss. In a similar way, Paul is assuring the Colossians this morning that they can fully accept everything he says to them. They are encouraged to embrace Paul with full confidence. And the Colossians can also know that Paul is a true servant because he rejoices in his suffering. And so if we go back to verse 24, we read, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. So this is a very rich verse, as you could probably tell. And so we'll spend some time unpacking it. Now, the first thing to notice is that Paul is saying he rejoices in what was suffered. It's not like other passages where they speak of suffering in the midst uh, or rejoicing in the midst of suffering, but rather Paul rejoices because of his suffering. And so why does he say that? Well, he says that because he knows that he is not his own. We, brothers and sisters, are not our own. You see, we are part of a corporate body, a covenantal body. We are joined to a group. You know, just like a soldier is not merely an individual. You see, a soldier, he's part of a platoon, and a platoon is part of an army. And so it is that for us, we are part of God's Christ's army. But how do we know this? Well, one way is that we suffer. Paul knows that he is part of Christ's army because he suffers like Christ. You see, Jesus is the commander, our leader, our head. And he was attacked, he suffered trials and tribulations. But more than that, Jesus actually continues to suffer. And he continues to go through trials and tribulations. Jesus told Paul this in Acts 9, verses 3 to 6. Christ said to Paul as he met him on the, way to, on the road to Damascus, while Paul was still called Saul and was persecuting the church, Jesus says, or Acts 9 we read, As he neared Damascus, that's Paul, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Christ's voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? And our Lord replied, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And he replied, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. You see, Jesus said that he was being persecuted. He was suffering. Even though Jesus died, even though he was resurrected, even though he ascended into heaven, his plan is not finished. You see, this is because we live in an age of transition, a period that people call, you might have heard this term, the already and the not yet. The new age of Christ's reign has already come, but it's not yet consummated. It's not yet fully realized. Since Christ's ascension into heaven, we have been in the end times, the end times waiting for Christ's return. And what characterizes the end times, brothers and sisters? Is it peace? Is it prosperity? No. The writings of Scripture make it clear that the end times will be a time of suffering for the church. One of the images Scripture uses is that this will be a time of birth pains in preparation for the birth when Christ will come again. And so God tells us that the end times will bring a lot of persecution, struggle, toil, suffering, and trials and tribulations for his people. You see, the enemies of God, the demonic forces, the world, our own flesh, sinful flesh, are making one last battle against Jesus Christ, and therefore also against his entire army, all those who are baptized in his name, who bear his banner, and who march in his army. Jesus says in John 15, verses 18 to 20, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In essence, what our Lord is saying here is that the world is at war with me, and so if you are in my army, my camp, they are also at war with you. And so when Paul is suffering, he can rejoice, he can laugh, because it's a sure sign that he has the privilege of being in Christ's army. He rejoices because it's a privilege an honor to be attacked because of one's relationship to Jesus Christ. But maybe you're wondering this morning, you know, I haven't been stoned like Paul was. And so we have to remember that our sufferings, our trials, our afflictions, they aren't always as obvious as your neighbor picking up a stone to throw at you for owning a Bible. You see, there are more ordinary forms of tribulations. 
We suffer when we are in combat against our sin or against the world or against Satan. For instance, it's a trial, it's a trial just to live openly before the world, to live honestly before them, not hiding the gospel under a, under a cup or a bowl, but displaying it in how we talk and act. It's a struggle to do that. You see, Satan tries to shut our mouths from speaking of God before others to make us feel ashamed of that. But we have to be open. We have to, to speak. And this is a trial in itself. It, it's very difficult. Or, for instance, when we want to react in a sinful way or if we want to indulge in a sinful pleasure or if we want to be lazy on the job site like perhaps our co-workers are, we know that a war is going on. Our flesh is tormenting us until we give in to the sin, but we must fight it. This fight, knowing that we are in a skirmish, in a battle, in an, uh, that we are under attack, it helps us to rejoice like Paul. You can rejoice, you can laugh in the midst of this battle because the battle gives clarity. The battle gives you focus. It helps you to know, okay, this means I am on Christ's side. I am His. And so I must suffer. I must struggle with Him. I must identify myself with Him and not with these other things. And it help gives us focus because we could see that that evil, those attacks are from the enemy. That thought I had is an enemy. The disapproval of my classmates in school, that's the same disapproval that they gave to Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so that's one reason that Paul rejoices in his suffering. But what about what he says after in verse 24, the end of verse 24? He says, And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. Well, we know what this doesn't mean. Paul isn't saying that somehow his sufferings are like Christ's sufferings on the cross to cover and pay for the sins of the church. Because as Hebrew ten fourteen says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Further, the word here for affliction or suffering is not used in Scripture to describe the crucifixion of salvation. Rather, this word describes the suffering. It describes the pain that believers go through in life. This suffering is a suffering that produces endurance and godly character. And so when Paul says what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction, he means that we are in the end times. Afflictions, tribulations must continue all the way up until Christ returns. As Peter says in 1 Peter 5.10, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 
after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. You see, as we receive grace, so too will trials come upon us. But in trials, more grace will come as well. And so you see, Paul rejoices in his afflictions also for the Lord's people. Paul is suffering for the benefit of the church. He loves her. He serves her. His life is full of suffering in order to be a true servant for them. You see, he is like a father to the church. As all of you probably know, it's Father's Day today, a day to celebrate men who suffer like Christ for the benefit of their wives and children. Men work hard to provide for their families. They lead them in the ways of Jesus Christ to shepherd them in green pastures where they can feed, their families can feed and grow. Fathers are willing even to suffer death to protect their loved ones. And so too Paul, like a father to the church, he gladly suffers on their behalf. As a man, as a leader in the church, he rejoices in serving her, even though that serving comes with suffering. He rejoices in the suffering that comes along with it. You see, this is the truth of Scripture. This is the cruciform shape or the the cross shape pattern of Christ and the church. Since the fall into sin, all growth includes pain and trials. Just think about Eve. The hope given to her in Genesis is that one of her offspring will deliver humanity from Satan's power. But the only way this offspring will come is by bearing children, by being fruitful and multiplying. But this comes with much pain. As the Bible says, in pain you will bear children. Or think about the Israelites in Egypt. As they are persecuted, enslaved by the Egyptians, Scripture says in this they multiplied all over Egypt. Or think of Jesus Christ. By suffering and dying, he has now become the leader, the ruler over the entire world, over people from all all nations. And so for for the church, it's the same thing. You know, we have a proverb. I think it's attributed to Tertullian. Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When the church suffers, when she struggles, when she fights against sin, when she fights against the world, then she is strong, then she grows up. And the same could be said of individual believers as well. You see, when you're suffering from a disease or when you lose a job for maintaining Christian moral teaching or you miss a promotion for not working on Sundays or if you're an owner, when an employee leaves because they know your stance on Western woke beliefs. Well, in such times, in such trials, 
one's personal relationship with God grows. You grow up in the faith. You become more mature. You see, when a believer goes to war against their sin, they are wrestling it tooth and nail. The grace they experience multiplies. And so Paul, a true servant of Christ and the church, rejoices in his suffering that comes along with a life of service to God. But we also see, moving to point two, that he also desires to make known the mystery of Christ. And we see that he does this by laboring, by working, by struggling and striving relentlessly on behalf of the church. If we look first at verse 29, he says, To this end I labor, struggling. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. You see, Paul knows that it is the end times. We are at the last stretch of history. And so he doesn't stand around, wait around, twiddling his thumbs. He gives his life. He gives his time, his energy, his gifts. He gives his emotional capacity. He gives it all to serve Christ's body, the church. But how does he serve? He serves as we read in verse 25 and 26. He serves, 25, 26, I have become its servant by the commission of God, the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. And in verse 28, he also describes how he serves. In 28, he says, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. So they teach the fullness of the mystery. That is, they teach from all of Scripture. From all of Scripture, they preach Jesus Christ, the gospel which has now fully been revealed. This includes teaching, but it also includes, as we read, admonishing. Now that means rebuking or, or warning people. And next week we'll look at some of Paul's warnings and rebukes to the church in Colossae. And so we, this is how Paul serves, teaching and admonishing. But what is the purpose of this service? What's the purpose? Well, Paul says he is serving the Colossians in verse 28 so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. This doesn't mean morally perfect. This doesn't mean that he's trying to make them sinless. But he means mature. He wants to present them mature in Christ. He wants to train the Colossians. He wants to train you to be mature Christians. Now, by mature Paul doesn't mean people who have been in the church their whole life. He doesn't mean professors in theology. You could be both of these things and yet be very immature in the faith. 
But by mature, he specifies mature in Christ. This means that you have a settled conviction about Christ, a strong assurance of his work and salvation. Being mature means being totally devoted to the Lord. To be mature in Christ, to be perfect in him, is to be like Paul, a humble servant who rejoices, who can rejoice in suffering, a servant who labors and works and serves and builds up the local body of believers. You see, Paul displays to us what it means to be mature in his sacrificial, Christ-centered life. Paul, in a way, is gently chiding the Colossians by saying this. He's showing them and he's showing us that we have work to do, that they have maturing, that there is growing up to do. He is writing this so that they may realize this and grow up in Christ. And the Spirit is saying the same to us today. God has given this passage to you, His people in Surrey, so that you may know that He is working in you to make you mature in Christ. So how are you all laboring? How are you serving the church here? Are you involved in the Bible studies, the meal trains, the prayer meetings? Are you visiting and supporting other members? Now, perhaps as I'm saying this, you're realizing you have some growing up to do. And that's all right. We all find ourselves at times in this position, realizing this. And we have to know that this is actually the Spirit's work convicting you. And so take up your call to be a servant of Christ. Labor, work for the benefit of of his local body, his church, this community of believers. Desire to build up this church, that the mystery of Christ may bear fruit in this church as it should. But what might some of this fruit of maturity be? Well, if you look at chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, we read what this looks like. There we read, My purpose is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, the fruit of the mystery of Christ, the result of being a mature Christian, is that believers are united in love, are united in an understanding of Jesus Christ. This is what the church is all about, knowing Christ and loving one another. This is what Paul is trying to do in the church in Colossians. This is what he's trying to spur them on to. And this is what Christ desires for you, brothers and sisters that you grow in love for one another, that you mature in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, 
the knowledge of the mystery. Do you realize that? This is what Christ wants for you. This is what Christ is desiring to do among you. And now our final point. A true servant of Christ works by the energy of Christ. You see, hearing about all this suffering, all this toil, this struggling, all this work, it's probably leaving you feeling exhausted. I know that throughout this week, that definitely was some of the the weight that was upon me. You know, work is hard. Just think about it. It can leave you, just thinking about work can leave you incapacitated. It can leave you lying in bed in the morning, not wanting to get up, to face the day, to face your work, face reality. And so who is able to do all these things? You may think to yourself, I know that Paul is called to labor, to be a servant of the church. Maybe our elders should be working hard like Paul was. But me, I'm just, I'm just retired. I don't have an office of elder or deacon, or I'm sick, or I'm still in school, university, I'm just a kid. How can I be expected to serve the church? How can God expect me to struggle for the church? I can hardly get myself to attend worship on Sundays. Well, we need to remember brothers and sisters, that Paul was not a superhuman. You know, most of the great servants of Christ and His church, most of them nameless to us and to history, they were just as ordinary as you and as me. But how did they do such great acts of service? How did they do so much for the Lord? Was it because of their great strength? Was it because of Paul's great abilities that he was able to do all these things, to do what he did? Well, listen to the man himself. This isn't some kind of false humility. He says, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which he so powerfully works in me. Paul was weak. He said so himself, yet he gave himself to the work of the church, and God blessed the work. God did the work. He worked through Paul. You see, if Paul never made an effort, nothing would have happened. But as Ecclesiastes 11 says, Cast your bread on the waters, and you will receive more back. If you give your energy, if you offer yourself to the Lord's service, you offer your strength, your resources, your emotional reserves, and you give it to the Lord's service, He will sustain you. He will work powerfully through you. And so pray to God that He would provide you with the energy and that He would work through you 
for the benefit of his church here in Surrey. So pray to God. Trust in his energy, his strength, and get serving his church. Pray and serve. So how can we wrap up all these things? Well, brothers and sisters, as we mentioned, there is a war going on. We are in the end times. The end times when the enemies of Christ are arrayed, lined up in battle against Him and against His gospel. You see, the birth pangs of the apocalypse are upon us. And God the Father is busy working in the earth. As Jesus said in John 6, my Father is working until now, and so I am working. And this work, it brings toil. It'll bring suffering. To be productive, to serve the church, to follow Christ and identify with Him and His army means that there will be suffering. Do not be deluded. But if our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior of body and soul, who offers us eternal life, an eternal Sabbath rest of peace, if He suffered, if He worked for us, who are we to skip town, to avoid helping Him, to abandon Him when the battle is thick? If the Father and Son are working, so we too We gladly join Him. We rejoice to join Him in this task. You see, there is no real retirement when a war is on your doorstep. All hands on deck. The good news, however, is that if we suffer for Christ's sake, as we undoubtedly will, we know that we are His. Our identity is with Him. Our destiny, our inheritance is bound up into Him. When we suffer and work for Him, with Him, He promises to powerfully work in us, empowering us with His Spirit so that we can serve the church more and more, even when we think we have nothing more to give. You see, through ordinary people like you and me, God makes the mystery of Christ fully known. Through us, He makes the church grow up in maturity. And so ask Jesus to work through you for the growth of this body of believers. Ask Him to lead, to strengthen you, to be involved in this congregation Ask Him to help you be a servant of Christ's church here in Surrey. Amen.